peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Behind the Son of Sam murders. The other site used by the cult was Van Cortland Park, named for Jacobus Van Cortland, a former mayor of New York and one of David Van Cortland Crosby's forefathers. Another of Crosby's forefathers lent his name to Shiler Road, which happens to run along the western boundaries of the Greystone Estate in the Hollywood Hills. I have no idea what, if anything, any of that means, but I thought it best that I toss it into the mix. Chapter 12. Riders on the Storm. The Doors. By that I mean... Get me a lead singer. He's got sort of an androgynous blonde hair, very pretty. We need a guitar player, sort of hatchet-faced. Wears a hat, plays very fast, very dramatic. He must be very dramatic. Get me a pound of bass player, pound of drummer. They're making little cardboard cutouts. They hire a producer, they hire writers, and in the current stuff now, they don't even bother getting people to play. Don't bother with that guitar player, bass player, drummer nonsense. The people in those bands can't write, play, or sing. David Crosby, describing the synthetic manufactured nature of today's rock bands. <coughs> At the very beginning of this journey, it was noted that Jim Morrison's story was not in any way unique. That, however, is not exactly true. It is certainly true that Morrison's family background did not differ significantly from that of his musical peers, but in many other significant ways, Jim Morrison was indeed a most unique individual, and quite possibly the unlikeliest rock star to ever stumble across a stage. Morrison eventually arrived on the scene as a fully developed rock star, complete with a backing band, a stage persona, and an impressive collection of songs. Enough, in fact, to fill the Doors' first few albums. How exactly he reinvented himself in such a radical manner remains something of a mystery, since before his sudden incarnation as singer-songwriter, James Douglas Morrison had never shown the slightest interest in music, none whatsoever. He certainly never studied music and could neither read nor write it. By his own account, he never even had much of an interest in even listening to music. He told one interviewer that he never went to concerts, one or two at most. And before joining The Doors, he never did any singing. I never even conceived of it. 
Asked near the end of his life if he had ever had any desire to learn to play a musical instrument, Jim responded, not really. So here we had a guy who had never sang, who had never even conceived of the notion that he could open his mouth and make sounds come out, who couldn't play an instrument and had no interest in learning such a skill, and who had never much listened to music or been anywhere near a band, even just to watch one perform, and yet he somehow emerged virtually overnight as a fully formed rock star who would quickly become an icon of his generation. Even more bizarrely, legend holds that he brought with him enough original songs to fill the first few Doors albums. Morrison did not, you see, do as other songwriters do and pen the songs over the course of the band's career. Instead, he allegedly wrote them all at once before the band was even formed. As Jim once acknowledged in an interview, he was not a very prolific songwriter. Most of the songs I've written, I wrote in the very beginning, about three years ago. I just had a period when I wrote a lot of songs. In fact, all of the good songs that Morrison is credited with writing were written during that period. The period during which, according to rock legend, Jim spent most of his time hanging out on the rooftop of a Venice apartment building, consuming copious amounts of LSD. This was just before he hooked up with fellow student Ray Manzarek to form The Doors. Legend also holds, strangely enough, that that chance meeting occurred on the beach, though it seems far more likely that the pair would have actually met at UCLA, where both attended the university's rather small and close-knit film school. In any event, the question that naturally arises, though it does not appear to have ever been asked of him, is how exactly did Jim, the Lizard King Morrison, write that impressive batch of songs? I'm certainly no musician myself, but it is my understanding that just about every singer-songwriter across the land composes his or her songs in essentially the same manner, on an instrument usually either a piano or a guitar. Some songwriters I hear can compose on paper, but that requires a skill set that Jim did not possess. The problem, of course, is that he also could not play a musical instrument of any kind. How then did he write the songs? He would have had to have composed them, I'm guessing, in his head. So we are to believe then that a few dozen complete songs never heard by anyone and never played by any musician, existed only in Jim Morrison's acid-addled brain. Anything is possible, I suppose. But even if we accept that premise, we're still left with some nagging questions, including the question of how those songs got out of Jim Morrison's head. As a general rule of thumb, if a songwriter doesn't know how to read and write music, he can play the song for someone who does, and thereby create the sheet music, which was the case, for example, with all of the songs that Brian Wilson penned for the Beach Boys. But Jim quite obviously could not play his own songs. So did he, I don't know, maybe hum them? And these are, it should be clarified, songs that we are talking about here, as opposed to just lyrics, which would more accurately be categorized as poems because Jim, as is fairly well known, was quite a prolific poet. 
Whereas he was a songwriter only for one brief period of his life. But why was that? Why did Morrison, with no previous interest in music, suddenly and inexplicably become a prolific songwriter, only to just as suddenly lose interest after mentally penning an impressive catalog of what would be regarded as rock staples? And how and why did Jim achieve the accompanying physical transformation that changed him from a clean-cut, collegiate, and rather conservative-looking young man into the brooding sex symbol who would take the country by storm? And why, after a few years of adopting that persona, did Jim transform once again, in the last year or so of his life, into an overweight, heavily bearded, reclusive poet who seemed to have lost his interest in music just as suddenly and inexplicably as he had obtained it. It wasn't just Morrison who was, in retrospect, a bit of an oddity. The entire band differed from other Laurel Canyon bands in a number of significant ways. As Vanity Fair once noted, the doors were always different. All four members of the group, for example, lacked previous band experience. Morrison and Manzarek, as noted, were film students. And drummer John Densmore and guitarist Robbie Krieger were recruited by Manzarek from his Transcendental Meditation class, which is, I guess, where one goes to find musicians to fill out one's band. That class, however, apparently lacked a bass player, so they did without except for those times when they used session musicians and then claimed that they did without. Anyway, the point is that none of the four members of The Doors had any real band credentials. Even a band as contrived as The Birds, as we shall soon see, had members with band credentials. So too did Buffalo Springfield, with Neil Young and Bruce Palmer, for example, having played in the Minor Birds, backing a young vocalist who would reinvent himself as Rick Superfreak James. Goldie McJohn of Steppenwolf, oddly enough, was a minor bird as well. The Mamas and the Papas were put together from elements of the Journeyman and the Mugwumps, and so on with the rest of the Laurel Canyon bands. The Doors could cite no such band lineage. They were just four guys who happened to come together to play the songs written by the singer who had never sung, but who had a sudden calling and a magical gift for songwriting. And as you would expect with four guys who had never actually played in a band before, they didn't really play very well. And that is kind of an understatement. Don't take my word for it, though. Let's let the band's producer, Paul Rothschild, weigh in. The Doors were not great live performers musically. They were exciting theatrically and kinetically, but as musicians, they didn't make it. There was too much inconsistency. There was too much bad music. Robbie would be horrendously out of tune with Ray. John would be missing cues. There was bad mic usage, too, where you couldn't hear Jim at all. As fate would have it, I have heard some audio of a young and quite inebriated Jim Morrison at the microphone, and I would have to say that not being able to hear Jim at all might have, in some cases, actually improved the performance. But performing poorly as a live band, of course, did not really set the doors apart from its contemporaries. 
Another thing that was unusual about the band, however, is that from the moment the band was conceived, the lineup never changed. No one was added. No one was replaced. No one dropped out of the band over artistic differences or to pursue a solo career or to join another band or for any of the other reasons that bands routinely change shape. It would be difficult to identify another Laurel Canyon band of any longevity that could make the same claim. After their first two albums, the Birds changed lineups with virtually every album release. Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention were in a near constant state of flux. Love and Steppenwolf changed lineups on a regular basis, with leaders John Kay and Arthur Lee routinely firing band members. Laurel Canyon's country rock bands were also constantly changing shape, usually by incestuously swapping members amongst themselves. But not the Doors. Jim Morrison's band arrived on the scene as a fully formed entity with a name taken from Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, a stable lineup, a backlog of soon-to-be-hit songs, and no previous experience writing, arranging, playing, or performing music. Other than that, though, they were just your run-of-the-mill, organic, grassroots, 1960s rock and roll band, albeit one with a curious aversion to political advocacy. Jim Morrison was, by virtually all accounts, a voracious reader. Former teachers and college professors expressed amazement at the breadth and depth of his knowledge on various topics, and at the staggering array of literary sources that he could accurately cite. And yet he was known to tell interviewers that he hadn't studied politics that much, really. But that was okay, according to drummer John Densmore, since a lot of people at our concerts, at least, they're sort of, it seems like they don't really come to hear us speak politics. That's the way it was in the 1960s, you see. The young folks of that era just didn't concern themselves much with politics and certainly didn't want their anti-war icons engaging in anything resembling political discourse. During the Doors' glory days on the Sunset Strip, Morrison struck up an intimate friendship with Whiskey-A-Go-Go owner Elmer Valentine, according to a Vanity Fair article published in September 2006. At the time, Valentine was also, coincidentally of course, very close to his own secretary booking agent, Gail Slotman, whom Jim had known since kindergarten through naval officer circles. Valentine was also, by pretty much all accounts, including his own, a made man. Valentine arrived in L.A. by way of Chicago, where he had worked as a vice cop, a decidedly corrupt vice cop. By his own account, he worked as a police captain's bagman, collecting the filthy lucre on behalf of the captain. He also boasted that even while working as a vice cop, his night job was running nightclubs for the outfit, for gangsters. One very close friend from his days in Chicago was Felix Aldericio, also known as Milwaukee Phil, who was arguably the most feared hitman in the country in the 1950s and 60s, carrying out at least 14 murders for Sam Giancana and other Chicago bosses. 
Valentine was ultimately indicted for extortion, though he naturally managed to avoid prosecution and conviction. Venturing out to L.A. circa 1960, he soon found himself running PJ's Nightclub at the corner of Crescent Heights and Santa Monica Boulevards, which, as you may recall, was co-owned by Eddie Nash and was the favored hangout of early rocker murder victim Bobby Fuller. It wasn't long, though, before Valentine had his very own club to run, the legendary Whiskey-A-Go-Go, where numerous Laurel Canyon bands, including The Doors in the summer of 1966, served their residency. Valentine obviously had considerable financial backing to launch his business empire, and it wasn't much of a secret on the Strip where that backing came from. Frank Zappa once cryptically referred to Valentine's backers as an ethnic organization, while Chris Hillman of The Birds simply noted that whoever financed Elmer, I don't want to know. Valentine received far more than just financial backing to launch the whiskey. He got a generous assist from the media as well. As Vanity Fair noted, within months of the whiskey's debut, Life magazine had written it up Jack Parr had broadcast an episode of his post-tonight weekly program for the club, and Steve McQueen and Jane Mansfield had installed themselves as regulars. Legendary actor McQueen, it should be noted, was a former U.S. Marine who had served in an elite unit tasked with protecting President Harry Truman's private yacht. Turning now to the Birds, the band that started the folk rock revolution, we find that they were, by any reasonable assessment, an entirely manufactured phenomenon. As a fledgling band, they had any number of problems. The first and most obvious was that the band's members did not own any musical instruments. That problem was solved, though, when Naomi Hirshhorn, better known for funding quasi-governmental projects, such as the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., stepped up to the plate to provide the band with instruments, amplifiers, and the like. But that didn't solve a bigger problem, which was that the band's members, with the notable exception of Jim, later Roger McGinn, didn't have a clue as to how to actually play those instruments. Cast to play the bass player was Chris Hellman, who had never picked up a bass guitar in his life. As he candidly admitted years later, he was a mandolin player and didn't know how to play bass. But the other band members didn't know how to play their instruments either, so I didn't feel too bad about it. On drums was Michael Clark, who had never before held a set of drumsticks in his hands, but who bore a resemblance to Rolling Stone Brian Jones, which was deemed to be of more significance than actual musical ability. As Crosby co-author Carl Gottlieb recalled, Clark had played beatnik bongos and conga drum, but had no experience with conventional drumming. Richie Unterberger noted in Turn, Turn, Turn that the guys in the birds had barely known each other before getting thrown into the studio, were still learning electric instruments, and in a couple cases, had never really even played their assigned instruments at all. Actually, Michael Clark didn't even have an instrument to start with. On his first rehearsals and even some recording sessions, he kept time on cardboard boxes. 
Gene Clark, though by far the most gifted songwriter in the band and a talented vocalist as well, could barely play his guitar and so was relegated to banging the tambourine, which was Jim Morrison's and various non-musically inclined members of the Partridge family's instrument of choice as well. David Crosby, tasked with rhythm guitar duties, wasn't much better. Crosby himself admitted in his first autobiography, does anyone really need to write more than one autobiography, by the way? That Roger was the only one who could really play. The band had another problem. With the clear exception of Gene Clark, the group was a bit lacking in songwriting ability. To compensate, they initially played mostly covers. Fully a third of the band's first album consisted of covers of Dylan songs, and nearly another third was made up of covers of songs by other folk singer-songwriters. Clark contributed the five original songs, two of them co-written with McGinn. As for Crosby, who emerged as the band's biggest star, his only contribution to the Birds' first album was backing vocals. Carl Franzoni perhaps summed it up best when he declared rather bluntly that the Birds' records were manufactured. The first album in particular was an entirely engineered affair created by taking a collection of songs by outside songwriters and having them performed by a group of nameless studio musicians. For the record, the actual musicians were Glenn Campbell on guitar, Hal Blaine on drums, Larry Natchel on bass, Leon Russell on electric piano, and Jerry Cole on rhythm guitar after which the band's trademark vocal harmonies, entirely a studio creation, were added to the mix. As would be expected, the Birds' live performances, according to Barry Hoskins' Waiting for the Sun, weren't terribly good. But that didn't matter much. The band got a lot of assistance from the media, with Time being among the first to champion the new band. And they also got a tremendous assist from Vito and the Freaks and from the Young Turks, as previously discussed. We shall return to the birds and to the ubiquitous Vito Pelikas in the next chapter. For now, I leave you with this curious little story about bird Chris Hillman's initial arrival in Laurel Canyon, as told by Michael Walker in Laurel Canyon. In the autumn of 1964, a 19-year-old bluegrass adept and virtuoso mandolin player named Chris Hillman stood at the corner of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Kirkwood Drive, contemplating a for-rent sign on a telephone pole across from the Canyon Country Store. It didn't take him long to find a place to stay, and in the canyon's emerging mythos and enchanted serendipity, one presented itself as if by magic. This guy drives up and he says, you looking for a place to rent? Hellman recalls. I said, yeah. And he said, well, follow me up. It was this young guy who was a dentist. It was his parents' house, a beautiful old wood house down a dirt road. And he lived on the top and he was renting out the bottom part. I just went, wow, perfect. The guy ended up being my dentist for a while. It was the top of the world, a beautiful, beautiful place. I had the best place in the canyon. 
in the Los Angeles of the 1960s, you see, it was quite common for a very wealthy person to offer exquisite living accommodations to a random, scruffy vagrant. We know this to be true because it happened to Charles Manson on more than one occasion. In any event, Chris Hillman's former mountaintop home no longer exists because as tends to happen in Laurel Canyon, it burned to the ground on what Walker described as a hot, witchy day in the 60s. According to Hillman, Crosby was at my house an hour before the blaze. I can't connect it yet where the Satan factor came into play with David, but I'm working on it. Chapter 13, Eight Miles High and Falling Fast, The Birds. I'd have to say that, personally speaking, Crosby was worse for the good feelings of the local rock and roll scene than Manson was. Terry Melcher. One of the most influential people lurking about the periphery of the Laurel Canyon scene was the Bird's first producer, Terry Melcher. It is fairly well known that Melcher was the son of virginal actress Doris Day who was just 16 when impregnated and 17 when Terry was born. Melcher's father was trombonist Al Jordan, who reportedly regularly beat Day, and likely Terry as well. Jordan wasn't around for long, though. His death, when Melcher was just two or three years old, was yet another Hollywood suicide. After an equally short-lived second marriage, Doris Day married her agent and producer, regarded as one of the biggest assholes in Hollywood, and that's not an easy title to attain given the fierce competition. Like Jordan, Melcher was well known for being a tyrannically violent and abusive man. He also reportedly embezzled some $20 million from his wife, client. On the bright side, though, he did adopt and help raise Terry, who took his name. Terry Melcher, perhaps more so than anyone else, had deep ties to virtually all aspects of the canyon scene, including the Laurel Canyon musicians, the Manson family, the group of young Hollywood actors generally referred to as the Young Turks, and the Vito Polikas dance troupe. As it turns out, Melcher first met Vito Polikas when Terry was still in high school in the late 1950s. As Melcher later recalled, Vito was an art instructor, when I was in high school, we'd go to his art studio because he had naked models. A half decade or so later, Melcher and Polikas would, each in his own way, become key players in launching not just the career of the birds, but the entire Laurel Canyon music scene, as well as the accompanying youth countercultural movement. Also, while still in high school, Melcher befriended Bruce Johnston, the adopted son of a top executive with the Rexall drugstore chain. While growing up on the not-so-mean streets of Beverly Hills and Bel Air, the two recorded together as singing duo Bruce and Terry. Johnston also played in a high school band with Phil Spector, who, it will be recalled, shared with Melcher and various others in this story the distinction of having lost a parent to an alleged act of suicide. As has been pointed out already, it was Spectre's crack team of studio musicians, dubbed the Wrecking Crew, who provided the instrumental tracks for countless albums by Laurel Canyon bands. 
Bruce Johnston, meanwhile, went on to become a beach boy, replacing wrecking crew member Glenn Campbell, who had briefly replaced Brian Wilson after Brian abruptly decided that he no longer wanted to perform live. Brian's brother Dennis forged a close bond with Terry Melcher, as well as with Greg Jacobson, a would-be actor and talent scout who was married to famed comedian Lou Costello's daughter. The trio of Wilson, Melcher, and Jacobson, who dubbed themselves the Golden Penetrators, with Wilson referring to himself rather subtly as the Wood, infamously forged a close bond with a musician-prophet-penetrator by the name of Charles Manson. In 1966, Melcher, along with Mark Lindsay of the band Paul Revere and the Raiders, leased and moved into the soon-to-be-infamous home at 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon. Lindsay would later have the dubious distinction of also living for a time in that other infamous canyon death house on Wonderland Avenue. Lindsay was also a regular visitor to the log cabin. The two were soon joined by Melcher's girlfriend, actress Candace Bergen. Melcher and Bergen remained in the home until early 1969, frequently entertaining high-profile guests from both the music and film industries. During the summer of 1968, when Charlie Manson and numerous members of his entourage, including Charles Tex Watson and Dean Morehouse, were shacking up with Melcher's sidekick, Dennis Wilson, Watson and Morehouse were known to regularly visit the Melcher Bergen home on Cielo Drive. Charlie Manson is known to have visited the Melcher home on several occasions as well, and to have occasionally borrowed Melcher's Jaguar. Just after Melcher and Bergen vacated the home, Jacobson reportedly arranged for Morehouse to live there briefly before Tate and Polanski took possession in February of 1969. During Morehouse's stay, Tex, who would later be portrayed as the leader of the Tate and LaBianca hit squads, came calling regularly. His address book would later be found to contain a phone number for a former Polanski residence. Watson had moved out to L.A. from Texas in 1966 after opting to drop out of college, which those who knew him viewed as being wildly out of character. By the spring of 1968, when Charles Watson met Charles Manson at Dennis Wilson's home, Tex was the modish co-owner of Crown Wig Creations on the corner of Santa Monica Boulevard and Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Through that business enterprise, he had developed extensive Hollywood contacts, contacts that came in handy when he began handling large drug transactions and large piles of cash for Charlie Manson. Tex Watson soon grew so close to Manson that according to Ed Sanders, he was known to complain at times that he actually thought he was Charlie. According to Vanity Fair, Tex Watson was also a regular patron of the whiskey, which isn't too surprising, given that Elmer Valentine's Club was well known to be a major drug trafficking site during the late 1960s. Watson's frequent sidekick, Dean Morehouse, by the way, hailed from Minot, North Dakota, identified by Maury Terry as the longtime home of a process faction with deep ties to Offutt Air Force Base. 
though it is purely speculation. It seems entirely possible that Morehouse served as a handler for both Charlies, Manson, and Watson. Perhaps tellingly, Vincent Bugliosi mentioned Morehouse only once in his nearly 700-page treatment of the Manson case, in much the same way that David Crosby ignored Vito Policus in his wordy autobiography. In the spring of 1969, the trio of Wilson, Melcher, and Jacobson got close to Bobby Beausoleil as well. Jacobson made at least two trips to the Girard Theatrical Agency to hear demo tapes that Bobby had recorded. The agency, headed by Jack Girard, specialized in supplying topless dancers to seedy clubs and actors and actresses for porno film shoots. Beausoleil's primary job with the agency was to deliver carloads of girls to the clubs. More than a few of those girls were members of Charlie's family. In March of 1969, just months before he was arrested for the torture murder of Gary Hinman, Bobby signed a songwriting contract with the agency and began recording demos. Beausoleil also accompanied Melcher and Jacobson on at least two trips out to the Spawn Movie Ranch, once in May of 1969 and then again the next month. Jacobson was a frequent visitor to Spawn and was known to boast of having held over 100 hours of conversations with the all-knowing prophet known as Charles Manson. Greg also lobbied NBC to shoot a documentary film about the Manson family's hippie commune, and the network was for a long time quite interested in the project. Along with Dennis Wilson, Jacobson also arranged for Charlie to record at an unnamed studio in Santa Monica. That session was also attended by Terry Melcher, Bobby Beausoleil, and several of the Manson girls. Lest anyone think otherwise, by the way, the Manson family certainly had no shortage of talented musicians. Convicted murderer Charles Manson, of course, was widely viewed by his contemporaries in the canyon as a talented singer, songwriter, guitarist. So too was Bobby Beausoleil, who had jammed with Dennis Wilson, played rhythm guitar for the pre-love lineup known as The Grassroots, knew Frank Zappa and had visited the log cabin, and later composed and recorded the film score for Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising. Convicted murderer Patricia Krenwinkel was an accomplished guitarist and songwriter. Convicted murderer Steve Clem Grogan was a talented musician as well. He later played in the prison band assembled by Beausoleil to record the Lucifer Rising soundtrack. In addition, family members Brooks Poston and Paul Watkins were accomplished musicians, and Catherine Gypsy Cher was a virtuoso violin player, as well as being a singer and occasional actress. See, for example, Ramrodder, co-starring Bobby Beausoleil, and filmed partially at, where else, Spawn Movie Ranch. Catherine Cher is notable in other ways as well, including her unparalleled feat of raising the bar so high on parental suicides that no one else, even in Laurel Canyon, is likely to be able to clear it. Orphaned as a child when both biological parents purportedly committed suicide, Gypsy was adopted by a psychologist and his wife. 
Her adopted mother then allegedly committed suicide as well, leaving her to be raised by her adoptive father. Cher is also notable for being the oldest of Charlie's girls, nearly 27 at the time of the murders. Most of the others were under 21, and many, including Dean Morehouse's daughter, Ruth Ann Uish Morehouse, were minors. Gypsy lived with Bobby Beausoleil before meeting and living with Manson, and she seemed to serve as a recruiter for both of them. According to Ed Sanders, Gypsy Cher also arranged for Paul Rothschild, the producer of The Doors, to hear the family music. It seems as though just about everyone had an opportunity to hear the family's music. Some of it was recorded in Beach Boy Brian Wilson's state-of-the-art home recording studio. Some was recorded by Terry Melcher and Greg Jacobson at Spawn Ranch using a mobile recording studio. Some was recorded in Santa Monica. By some reports, some was recorded by a major Hollywood studio. Other recordings were likely made as well, though nobody really likes to talk about such things. Greg Jacobson recorded many of his marathon conversations with Charlie, but as with the demo recordings made by Dennis Wilson, everyone likes to pretend that such recordings were lost or destroyed or never existed. The family was filmed at Spawn Ranch by Melcher as well. Family members also shot an extensive amount of filmmaking home movies, which some witnesses have claimed included family orgies and ritualized snuff films. A vast amount of NBC camera equipment and film was found to be in the possession of Charlie's motley crew, all of which was claimed to be stolen. It seems likely, however, given the network's known involvement with the family, that the equipment was provided to them so that they could film their exploits. When not hanging out with Charlie and Tex and Bobby, Terry Melcher also found time to produce the records that first catapulted the birds to fame, Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. The first, recorded in January 1965 and released a few months later, was the record that announced to the world the arrival of a new breed of music. Those early hits were created, simply enough, by borrowing from the songbooks of folk legends Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger, and then playing those songs on amplified equipment. Dylan himself followed suit not long after, at the Newport Folk Festival in July 1965, much to the consternation of the gathered crowd of folkies. In Hotel California, Barney Hoskins writes that the birds were, from the very outset, conceived as an electric rock and roll group. What Hoskins doesn't really clarify, though, is who exactly it was that initially conceived of this hugely influential band in those terms. Surely it wasn't the band members themselves who decided that they were going to pioneer a new musical genre since they probably had their hands full with just learning to play their instruments. It would probably be slightly more accurate to say that the birds appear to have been initially conceived as an electric folk rock group. By July of 1966, however, when the band released its third album, featuring the Gene Clark-penned Eight Miles High, it had morphed into something different, and by doing so, helped pioneer another genre of music psychedelic rock. 
With the later edition of Graham Parsons and the growing influence of Chris Hillman, the birds would next morph into a country rock band, thus helping to spawn that genre of music as well. According to rock and roll legend, the first two birds to get together were James Joseph McGinn III and Harold Eugene Clark. McGinn hailed from Chicago, the son of best-selling authors James and Dorothy McGinn. Considered a very talented guitarist, Jim had played with Bobby Darren, the Limelighters, and the Chad Mitchell Trio. In 1962, he left the Chad Mitchell Trio and worked for a time in New York City as a studio musician, before hearing the call that so many others seemed to hear and making his way to Los Angeles. Once there, he wasted no time hooking up with Gene Clark. Clark had been born in Tipton, Missouri, the second oldest in a family of 13 siblings. An undeniably talented songwriter and vocalist, Clark cut his first record with a local rock and roll combo when he was just 13 years old. He later joined the new Christie Minstrels, a vocal ensemble known during his tenure, primarily for the hit song Green Green. Like so many others, however, Gene soon found himself packing his bags for, where else, Los Angeles, where he met up with the recently arrived Jim McGuinn. The newly formed folk duo soon added a third mix to the voice, our old friend David Crosby, who had formerly been a vocalist with Les Baxter's Balladeers. Crosby brought in manager Jim Dixon, with whom he had done some solo sessions in 1963. The year before that, Dixon had produced a self-titled album for a band known as The Hillmen, featuring a young mandolin player out of San Diego named Chris Hillman. Hillman had cut his first album for the band known as the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers while still in high school. He was a highly regarded young bluegrass musician and was generally considered to be a virtuoso mandolin player which I guess is why Jim Dixon cast him to play the part of the bass player in the world's first folk rock band. And as we already know, Hillman lucked out in securing luxurious living accommodations right in the heart of what was to become the music community's epicenter. So he was all set to become a rock star. Raised on a ranch in San Diego, Hillman had traveled alone to Berkeley when he was just 15 ostensibly to take private mandolin lessons. At about that same time, his father had, wait for it, reportedly committed suicide. Those two closely aligned events would, I guess, have had a profound impact on the young musician. Hillman would ultimately become a skilled bass player and a major figure in the Laurel Canyon spawned country rock movement. Like many others of that bent, Hillman had been a huge fan of Spade Cooley during his formative years, and he later cited Cooley as a major influence on his own musical direction. Most readers are probably not familiar with the story of the King of Western Swing, which is kind of a shame, because as stories go, it's a pretty good one. So let's digress here briefly and meet the man who is frequently cited as one of the forefathers of country rock, and whom Brian Wilson has cited as a major influence as well. Throughout the 1940s and 1950s, Donnell Clyde Spade Cooley was a popular local musician and band leader. 
His weekly shows at the Redondo Beach Pier could draw as many as 10,000 appreciative fans, few of whom knew of his alcoholism, violent temper, or prior arrest for attempted rape. His popularity ultimately landed him his own local television show, The Spade Cooley Hour. His career, however, came to an abrupt end on April 3, 1961, when he tortured and murdered his young wife, Ella May Cooley, while forcing his 14-year-old daughter to watch in horror. According to court transcripts, Ella May had been spending a considerable amount of time in the company of two men identified as Luther Jackson and Bud Davenport, both of whom worked in the sprawling, CIA-infested medical research facility at UCLA. On the day of her death, Ella May had made the rather bold decision to inform Spade that the two men had initiated her into a free love cult and that she had decided to give up her family and all her possessions to join the group, which was in the process of buying land near the ocean to build and operate a private compound. Spade Cooley's response to his wife's declaration was to brutally beat, stomp, and strangle her to death, but only after repeatedly burning her with a lit cigarette. All of this was witnessed by daughter Melody, who had been told by her father that, now you're going to watch me kill this whore. After doing just that, Spade then asked his daughter if she thought that Ella May was really dead, adding, well, let's see if she is. He then proceeded to burn her lifeless body repeatedly with another lit cigarette until he apparently was satisfied that she was indeed dead. Unlike so many other celebrity homicide suspects, Cooley was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to serve a life sentence. He was sent to the rather notorious Vacaville facility, where he served eight years before being offered early parole. Just before his scheduled release, he arranged a November 23, 1969 comeback concert in Oakland, for which his captors had agreed to release him on a three-day pass. The concert was reportedly a huge success, and it looked as though Cooley's star was about to shine once again upon his pending release from prison. But that's not quite how the story ends. Instead, Cooley walked back to his dressing room right after the show and promptly dropped dead, thus ending the saga of Spade Cooley and allowing us to return to where we left off. After that is, taking one more quick detour here to note that not long after Spade Cooley was scheduled for release, another peripheral character in this story decided that it might be a good idea to kill his wife as well. Humble Harv Miller was a popular DJ on L.A.'s number one pop music station during that era, KHJ, on the AM dial. During the latter half of the 1960s, Miller was yet another of the players who helped launch the careers of the Laurel Canyon bands by being the first to get their new singles on the radio. But then he, like Cooley, killed his wife and was sent to prison. Also like Cooley, he was granted early release. But unlike Spade, Miller successfully resumed his career. And now, at long last, we can return to the birds. By mid-1964, the nucleus of what would become the band had formed with the bonding of McGinn and Clark, 
Between the two of them, they would provide the band with its signature 12-string guitar sound, its two lead vocalists, and, in the early years at least, its best songwriters. Then along came David Crosby, who added little more than harmony vocals, at least on the first two albums, but who seems to have largely hijacked the band with the help of manager Jim Dixon, who added fake bass player, but real musician, Chris Hillman. Crosby then rounded out the band by adding fake drummer Michael Clark. Clark had been born Michael Dick in Spokane, Washington. At 17, Dick ran away from home and hitchhiked to the land of enchantment known as California, apparently becoming Michael Clark along the way. The year was 1963. According to rock history as told by David Crosby, Clark and Crosby met in Big Sur, which coincidentally happens to be the location of the notorious Esalen Institute, or CSNY would play some years later. A year later, the vagrant teenager with no drumming experience would find himself cast to play the role of the drummer in the band designed to be America's answer to the Beatles. According to Crosby, Clark's first L.A. address was the home of Terry Melcher. The band, now complete, first dubbed themselves the Jet Set, and then the Beefeaters, even recording a less-than-memorable single under the latter moniker, before finally settling on The Birds. Before the end of 1964, Jim Dixon had signed the band to a deal with Columbia Records. As Barney Hoskins recounts in Waiting for the Sun, the obvious ineptitude of Michael Clark and shakiness of most of the others was still a problem when Jim Dixon got the band signed to Columbia in November. Columbia assigned the new band to staff producer Terry Melcher. That assignment, it would seem, was a rather fortuitous one given that the fledgling band's rehearsal space just happened to be in the very same basement studio that Melcher snuck off to while in high school. Just two months after signing with Columbia, the band, or rather its surrogates, were already in the studio recording Mr. Tambourine Man at the insistence of Jim Dixon. Despite the objections of various band members, Dixon reportedly pushed hard for the song to be the band's first single. On March 26, 1965, just two months after pretending to lay down the instrumental tracks for Mr. Tambourine Man, the Birds played their first real live show as the first act of the refurbished and reopened Ciro's nightclub. I wasn't there, so I can't say for sure, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that a band whose entire rhythm section was just learning to play their instruments probably did not put on a very compelling performance. The Birds apparently played one other live show before the Ciro's opening, though the nature of that show appears to be in dispute. Or perhaps there were two previous shows. According to Jim Dixon, the Bird's first public gig was booked by Lenny Bruce's mother, Sally Marr. She got them a job at Los Angeles City College, noon assembly, for a half hour. According to Carl Franzoni and various others, however, it was Vito Polikas who booked the Bird's first live show at a rented hall on Melrose Avenue just a day or two before the show at Ciro's. 
In any event, Mr. Tambourine Man was released about a month after the band had its big public debut at Ciro's, and the L.A. music scene would never be the same again. Before long, clubs big and small were popping up all along the fabled Sunset Strip, and bands were spilling out of Laurel Canyon to play them. As Terry Melcher recalled, kids came from everywhere. It just happened. One day you couldn't drive anymore. It was like overnight. You couldn't drive on the Strip. That would soon change. By the summer of 1967, the mythical summer of love, the club scene on the Strip was quickly dying. It had been killed, deliberately or not, by some of the key players who had created it. Terry Melcher, producer of the scene's first band, Lou Adler, business partner of club owner Elmer Valentine, and John Phillips, leader of the Mamas and the Papas. It was the show they produced, you see, the fabled Monterey Pop Festival, held on June 16 to 18, 1967 that killed the Sunset Strip scene. The bands that had filled the clubs became literally overnight too big to play such intimate venues. Over the course of the next decade, Laurel Canyon bands quickly moved from clubs to concert halls to massive sports arenas. But here we are, I suppose, getting ahead of ourselves. As for the birds, they carried on for a good many years albeit with numerous personnel changes. First out was the man who many feel was the most talented member of the group, Gene Clark, who dropped out in March of 1966, just one year after the band had first taken the stage at Ciro's. Clark was also the first original bird to pass away on May 24, 1991, at just 46 years of age, reportedly due to a bleeding ulcer. Two and a half years later, on December 19, 1993, Michael Clark died as well when his liver failed. Both deaths were attributed to chronic alcoholism. Jim McGinn, who remained a bird through numerous band lineups, joined the Subid religious sect in 1965. Two years later, upon the advice of the cult's founder, he changed his name to Roger. A decade later, he became a born-again Christian. In a similar vein, Chris Hillman became an evangelical Christian in the 1980s, but then later switched to the Greek Orthodox faith. Hillman played in various Birds lineups with Graham Parsons' Flying Burrito Brothers and in David Geffen's failed attempt at creating a second supergroup, one known as Souther Hillman Foray. David Crosby, of course, left the Birds and became one-third of David Geffen's first supergroup, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. These days, he primarily spends his time inseminating lesbians and occasionally reuniting with former bandmates. Jim Dixon and Terry Melcher continued to work with some of the Birds, particularly Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman. Melcher formed a particularly close bond with fellow trust fund kid Parsons, as did Melcher's sometime sidekick John Phillips. Both Melcher and Phillips, of course, had ties to Charles Manson. Melcher raved about him to Ned Doheny, whose former prison buddy Phil Kaufman was, as already noted, Parsons' road manager. In unrelated news, Bill Siddons, the Doors' road manager, was once a paramour of Mansonite Lynette Squeaky Fromm.
The family's fingerprints, it appears, can be found in nearly every nook and cranny of the Laurel Canyon scene. Chapter 14, The Great Serendipity, Buffalo Springfield. This is going to break your heart, but much of the music you heard in the 60s and early 70s wasn't recorded by the people you saw on the album covers. It was done by me and the musicians you see on these walls. Many of these kids didn't have the chops and were little more than garage bands. At concerts, people hear with their eyes. Teens cut groups slack in concert, but not when they bought their records. Hal Blaine, longtime drummer for the Wrecking Crew, quoted in the Wall Street Journal on March 23, 2011. The Birds were the very first folk rock band to take flight out of Laurel Canyon, and they were also the one that achieved the greatest fame. But to many discerning ears, the Sunset Strip's other folk rock powerhouse, Buffalo Springfield, was the more talented band. In the literature chronicling the 1960s music scene, few stories have been repeated more frequently than the legend surrounding the formation of what would later be regarded as perhaps the first supergroup. All such accounts unquestionably retell the story as though it were the gospel truth, seemingly oblivious to the improbability of virtually every aspect of the legend. And curiously, Virtually every version of the story contains some form of the word serendipity, as though everyone has been copying off the same kid's homework. As the story goes, Stephen Stills and Richie Furey, both formerly of the Augogo singers, had recently transplanted themselves to Los Angeles after the breakup of the manufactured folky group. Stills had been the first to relocate in August of 1965. Fure flew out to join him in February 1966 after spending a little time working at defense contractor Pratt and Whitney, and the two set their sights on putting together a folk rock band. Meanwhile, up in Toronto, Neil Young and Bruce Palmer were playing in a band known as the Mina Birds, a band fronted by an AWOL Navy man known as Ricky James Matthews, who would later morph into funkmeister, torturer, rapist Rick James, but whose real name was James Ambrose Johnson Jr. The Mina Birds broke up in March of 1965 just after authorities came calling on Matthews and tossed him in the Brooklyn Brig. In search of a new band, Young made the curious decision to head out to L.A., for no better reason than that he had heard what Palmer described as a hunch, a feeling that Stephen Stills was in L.A. Of course, Young had no clue if Stills was in fact there, nor did he know anyone else in L.A., and you would think that he would have realized that even if Stills was there, there was virtually no chance of finding some random person in a city of millions, especially when the person doing the searching had no idea how to get around the city. But no matter, Neil had a calling. So he jumped into an old hearse, of all things, recruited Palmer to ride shotgun, and the two set off on the lengthy trek to Los Angeles. They arrived, the legend tells us, on April 1, 1966, April Fool's Day, appropriately enough, 
and began the search for stills. Several days of searching yielded no results, however, and on the afternoon of April 6, the frustrated pair decided to head off to San Francisco in the hopes that maybe they would have better luck finding Stephen there. Perhaps they were going to go on a tour of all the big cities in America in the hopes that somewhere along the way they might find Stephen Stills. But as fate would have it, just as they were about to head out of town, Stephen Stills found them. As Barney Hoskins tells the story in Hotel California, Early in April 1966, Stills and Richie Furey were stuck in a Sunset Strip traffic jam in Barry Friedman's Bentley. As they sat in the car, Stephen spotted a 1953 Pontiac hearse with Ontario plates on the other side of the street. I'll be damned if that ain't Neil Young, Stills said. Friedman executed an illegal U-turn and pulled up behind the hearse. One of Rock's greatest serendipities had just occurred. Young, a lanky Canadian, had just driven all the way from Detroit in the company of bassist Bruce Palmer. They'd caught the bug that was drawing hundreds of other pop wannabes to the West Coast. The pair had actually driven out from Toronto, not Detroit, and the hearse was a 1959 model by most accounts, and Stills and Furet were in a van rather than a Bentley. But such inconsistencies are typical of all Hollywood legends. In any event, John Einerson in For What It's Worth supplies a somewhat longer and more hyperbole-filled version of the legend. What transpired next is no longer considered simply a chance encounter. Transcending mere fact, the events of the next few minutes have taken on mythic proportions to become, in the annals of popular culture, legendary. More than pure luck, coincidence, or serendipity, at the very moment the planets aligned, stars crossed, everyone's karma turned positive, divine intervention interceded, the hand of fate revealed itself, whatever you subscribe to in order to explain the unexplained. Though each of the five participants in that moment in time tell it slightly differently, the fact remains that the occupants of the white van, individually or collectively, depending on who's retelling it, noticed the black hearse with the foreign plate heading the other direction. Once the light of recognition came on, the van hastily pulled an illegal and likely difficult in rush hour U-turn, maneuvering its way through the line of northbound cars, horn honking frantically all the while to pull up behind the hearse. One of the passengers leapt out, ran up and pounded on the driver's side window of the strange vehicle, yelling to the startled travelers inside, who had taken no notice of the blaring car horn directly behind them. Hey, Neil, it's me, Steve Stills. Pull over, man. The drivers of the two vehicles managed to find curb space or a vacant store parking lot, again, depending on whose version is being related, and the five piled out to embrace and introduce one another. On April 6, 1966, in that late afternoon line of traffic, the course of popular music was altered forever. Anyone who actually lives and drives in L.A. 
likely knows that difficult is not really the word to describe the feasibility of making an impromptu U-turn in rush hour traffic on the Sunset Strip. The correct word would be impossible, which is the same word that accurately describes the likelihood of that van maneuvering its way through the line of northbound cars, or of it finding curb space on Sunset Boulevard. But let's just play along and assume that Neil Young and Stephen Stills, each of whom for some reason had been dreaming about forming a band with the other, had a random chance encounter on Sunset Boulevard. In that brief moment in time, a band was formed, or at least four-fifths of a band. Retiring to the home of Barry Friedman, who would later legally change his name to Fraser Mohawk, the quartet of musicians quickly decided that their newly formed band would only perform original material, though they didn't yet actually have any original material. They did, though, have three singer-songwriter guitarists on board, Fure, Young, and Stills, along with a bass player, Bruce Palmer. So all that was needed was a drummer. Three days later, on April 9, 1966, they acquired one in the form of Dewey Martin, formerly with the Dillards. The Dillards, in another awesome bit of serendipity, had just decided to go back to their acoustic bluegrass roots, so they no longer needed a drummer. They also decided that they had no further need for a whole bunch of new electric instruments and stacks of amplifiers. So Dewey, according to legend, brought all of that with him. Because the Dillards, you know, were just going to throw it all away anyway. So now, with the stars all properly aligned, the band was not only complete, but they each had shiny new electric instruments to play. And it all had magically come together in just 72 hours. There was still much work to be done, of course. For one thing, they all had to familiarize themselves with those shiny new electric instruments. And they all had to learn to play together as a band. And they had to build up a repertoire of original songs. And they had to rehearse and polish those songs. But not to worry, they had, as we'll see, at least a couple of hours to work on each of those things. Unlike the birds, the members of the Buffalo Springfield were, by all accounts, talented musicians from the outset. Stills and Young were both skilled lead guitarists and songwriters, though Young's vocals were, to be sure, an acquired taste. Fure was an accomplished rhythm guitarist and songwriter, as well as being the group's best lead vocalist. Bruce Palmer was a respected bass player who shockingly actually had experience playing the instrument. And Dewey Martin, several years older than the rest of the crew, had drummed for such legendary artists as the Everly Brothers, Charlie Rich, Roy Orbison, Patsy Cline, and Carl Perkins. None of that, however, explains the absurdly meteoric rise of Buffalo Springfield. On April 11, 1966, just five days after the quartet had purportedly first met, and just two days after they had added a drummer and acquired instruments, the band played its first club date at one of Hollywood's most prestigious venues, the Troubadour. 
Four days later, on April 15, they played the first of six dates around the Southland opening for the Birds, the hottest band on the Strip. The mini-tour was followed almost immediately by a six-week stand at the hottest club in town, the Whiskey-A-Go-Go. That gig wrapped up on June 20, 1966. A month later, on July 25, the band landed the opening slot on the most anticipated concert of the year, the Rolling Stone Show at the Hollywood Bowl, sponsored by local radio station KHJ. The station, by the way, had just been launched the previous year, in May of 1965, just a few weeks after the birds had taken the world by storm with the release of Mr. Tambourine Man and sparked a folk rock revolution. Just as new clubs magically appeared along the Sunset Strip in anticipation of the about-to-explode music scene, so too did a radio station magically appear to promote those new clubs and the artists filling them. Such things tend to happen, as we know, rather uh, serendipitously. Three days after the Stones' concert at the Bowl, Buffalo Springfield released its first single, the Neil Young-penned Nowadays Clancy Can't Even Sing, which failed to connect with the record-buying public. Several months later, though, the band would release what was to be its only hit single and what would become the most recognizable protest song of the 1960s. Buffalo Springfield had signed with Atlantic Records, which had been founded in 1947 by Amit Erdogan and dentist-inventor Herb Abramson. Born in Istanbul, Turkey in 1923, the year the Turk Republic was established, Ahmet was both the son and the grandson of career diplomats' civil servants. His father had been named the first Turkish representative to the League of Nations in 1925 and therefore served as the Turk Republic's ambassador to Switzerland, France, and England. In 1935, he was named the first Turkish ambassador to the United States, and he promptly relocated the family to Washington, D.C. From about the age of 12, Ahmet grew up along D.C.'s Embassy Row, attending elite private schools with the sons and daughters of senators, congressmen, and intelligence operatives. In 1947, three years after his father died, Erdogan founded Atlantic Records, at first, the label was home to jazz and R&B artists, including Ray Charles, the company's first big star. In the late 1950s, Erdogan took on his first assistant, a guy by the name of Phil Spector. Atlantic soon shifted focus, and rock luminaries like Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin, and the Rolling Stones would later join the label's stable of talent. Curiously enough, Columbia Records, the corporate entity that signed the birds, was also born in the nation's capital. The name is derived from the District of Columbia, where the label was founded and first headquartered some 125 years ago. It would appear then that the two record labels that signed and launched Laurel Canyon's first two folk rock bands were not only major record labels, but also happened to be corporate entities that had deep ties to the nation's center of power. 
with Laurel Canyon's other bands as well, it was the major record labels, not upstart independents, that signed the new artists. It was the major labels that provided them with instruments and amplifiers. It was the major labels that provided them with studio time and session musicians. It was the major labels that recorded, mixed, and arranged their albums. And it was the major labels that released and then heavily promoted those albums. As Unterberger duly notes in his expansive two-volume review of the folk rock movement, much folk rock was recorded and issued by huge corporations and broadcast over radio and television stations owned for the most part by the same or similar pillars of the establishment. The corporate titans of all three branches of the mainstream media, print, radio and television, did their part to help out the titans of the record industry. Unterberger notes that AM radio, and sometimes primetime network television, would act as a primary conduit for this countercultural expression. Conservative corporate-controlled AM stations across the country almost immediately began giving serious airplay to the new sounds coming out of Southern California, and network television gave the rising stars unprecedented coverage and exposure. Primetime variety hours were much more likely to showcase rock acts than they would be in subsequent decades. New releases by the birds were often accompanied by large ads in trade magazines that simultaneously plugged the records and upcoming TV appearances. The boys in Buffalo Springfield, for example, managed to find themselves appearing as guests on an impressive array of network television shows, including American Bandstand, The Smothers Brothers Show, Shebang, The Della Reese Show, The Go Show, The Andy Williams Show, Hollywood Palace, Where the Action Is, Joey Bishop's Late Night Show, and a local program known as Boss City. They also made guest appearances, curiously enough, on primetime hits like Mannix and The Girl from Uncle. The print media did its part as well to raise awareness of the new music countercultural scene. In September 1965, the nation's premier newsweeklies, Time and Newsweek, ran virtually simultaneous stories on the folk rock craze just months after the first folk rock release had climbed to the top of the charts. The country's biggest daily newspapers chimed in as well, providing an inordinate amount of coverage of the emerging scene. By the end of 1967, the movement had its very own publication, Rolling Stone. Initially designed to look as though it were a product of the underground press, it was, without question, very much a corporate mouthpiece. Another avenue of the print media provided the scene with considerable exposure as well. As Einerson notes, many of the Laurel Canyon stars, particularly members of Buffalo Springfield and the Monkees, were the darlings of the California teen magazines, including Teen Set, Teen Screen, and Tiger Beat. In 1964, just months before the birth of folk rock, the L.A. Free Press, widely believed to be the first underground newspaper of the 1960s, was launched from offices at the corner of Sunset and Crescent Heights 
at the very mouth of Laurel Canyon. The publication, which quickly became the voice of the canyon, was initially financed by comedian Steve Allen. In the late 1970s, it was purchased and killed off by pornographer Larry Flint. As the story is usually told, the 1960s countercultural movement posed a rather serious threat to the status quo. But if that were truly the case, then why was it the pillars of the establishment, to use Unterberger's words, that initially launched the movement? Why was it the man that signed and recorded these artists, and that heavily promoted them on radio, on television, and in print, and that set them up with their very own radio station and their very own monthly magazine? It could be argued, I suppose, that this was simply a case of corporate America doing what it does best, making a profit off of anything and everything. Blinded by greed, a devil's advocate might say, the corporate titans inadvertently created a monster. The question that is begged by that explanation, however, is why, after it had become abundantly clear that a monster had allegedly been created, was nothing done to stop the growth of that monster. Why, for example, did the state not utilize its law enforcement and criminal justice powers to silence some of the most prominent countercultural voices? It's not as if it would have required resorting to heavy-handed measures, since many of the Laurel Canyon stars were openly using, dealing, or at least advocating the use of illegal substances. They were practically begging for the powers that be to take action. And yet, that never happened. As just one example, three members of Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young, Richie Fure, and Jim Messina, along with a dozen others, including Eric Clapton, were arrested in a drug bust at a Topanga Canyon home, only to then walk away as if nothing had happened. Why wasn't this case, and so many others like it, aggressively prosecuted? David Crosby has candidly acknowledged that the DEA could have popped me for interstate transport of dope or dealing lots of times and never did. John Phillips, busted for wholesale trafficking of pharmaceuticals, was, by his own account, looking at 45 years and got 30 days. He began serving his sentence on April 20, appropriately enough, and served just 24 days in a minimum security prison that offered residents such activities as basketball, aerobics, softball, tennis, archery, and golf, and that featured a delicious kosher kitchen, an elaborate salad bar, and a tasty brunch on Sundays. Time and time again, the man was handed golden opportunities to crack down on Laurel Canyon's most prominent voices. And time and time again, those dangerous dissidents were handled with kid gloves. Indeed, the LAPD appears to have adopted a hands-off policy towards the Laurel Canyon crowd. As musician-turned-photographer Henry Diltz acknowledged to writer Harvey Kubernick, there was not a presence of the heat in Laurel Canyon. Radio personality Elliot Mintz agreed, noting that he couldn't recall a law enforcement presence in Laurel Canyon. Given the unique geography of the Canyon community, it would have been very easy for the police to cut off access and conduct regular sweeps. But nothing like that ever happened. 
Instead, police seem to have stayed out of the canyon entirely. The state had another powerful tool at its disposal to silence young critics, involuntary military service. There was, after all, a war going on, and hundreds of thousands of draft-age young men across the country were being fed into the war machine. As Richie Unterberger noted in Turn, 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 most folk rockers, if they were male, like their audience, were of draft age. But curiously enough, very, very few had their careers interrupted by the draft. Actually, Unterberger appears to have been playing it safe with the very, very few wording, since the reality is that none of the folks living the rock and roll life in the canyons, whether folk rockers, country rockers, or psychedelic rockers, had their careers interrupted by the Vietnam War. The literature is littered with mentions of various rock stars receiving their draft notices, but those mentions are invariably followed by amusing anecdotes about how said people fooled the draft board by pretending to be gay, or pretending to be crazy, or pretending to be otherwise unfit for service. Of course, if it had really been that easy to pull the wool over the draft board's eyes, then Uncle Sam probably wouldn't have been able to come up with all those bodies to send over to Vietnam. The reality is that thousands of young men across the country tried those very same tricks, but they only ever seemed to work for the Laurel Canyon crowd. How is it possible that not one of the musical icons of the Woodstock generation, almost all of them draft-age males, was shipped off to slog through the rice paddies of Vietnam. Should we consider that to be another one of those great serendipities? Was it mere luck that kept all the Laurel Canyon stars out of jail and out of the military during the turbulent decade that was the 1960s? Not likely. The reality is that the establishment, as it was known in those days, had the power to prevent the musical icons of the 1960s from ever becoming the megastars that they became. The state, working hand-in-hand hand with corporate America, could quite easily have prevented the entire countercultural movement from ever getting off the ground, because then, as now, the state controlled the channels of communication. A real grassroots cultural revolution would probably have involved a bunch of starving musicians barely scratching out a living playing tiny coffee shops in the hopes of maybe someday landing a record deal with some tiny independent label. And then, just maybe, if they got really lucky, getting a little airplay on some obscure college radio stations. But that's not how the 60s folk rock revolution played out, not by any stretch of the imagination. And now, without further ado, let's circle back around and take a look at the Buffalo Springfield story from the beginning, starting from January 3, 1945, when Stephen Arthur Stills was born to William and Talitha Stills. As John Einerson recounts in For What It's Worth, Stephen's roots were firmly planted in southern soil. His family traces its history back to the plantations of the rural antebellum south. After the Union armies laid waste to much of the southern farm economy, the family relocated to Illinois. Einerson describes William Stills as somewhat of a soldier of fortune, 
an engineer, builder, and dreamer who frequently uprooted the family to follow his dreams and schemes. That is, I suppose, as good a definition as any for what he actually appears to have been, a military intelligence operative who was frequently on assignment in various hotspots in Central America. Stephen's childhood was spent in Illinois, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, and various parts of Central America, including Costa Rica, El Salvador, and the Panama Canal Zone. At a fairly young age, Stills attended the Admiral Farragut Military Academy in St. Petersburg, Florida. In later years, his authoritarian manner and military bearing would earn him the nickname The Sarge. He joined his first band, The Radars, as a drummer. In his next band, The Continentals, he played guitar alongside another young guitarist named Don Felder, who would later turn up in Laurel Canyon as a member of the Eagles. Because, as we have seen repeatedly, all roads seem to lead to Laurel Canyon. According to Einerson, an unfortunate incident with the administration at his Tampa Bay High School resulted in Stevens' dismissal in 1961, after which he joined his wayward family, then settled in Costa Rica. What that unfortunate incident may have been, and why he had been separated from his family at a fairly young age, remains a mystery. In any event, Stevens' next few years are rather murky. Some reports have him graduating from high school in the Panama Canal Zone. Others have him shuffling back and forth between Florida and Central America. Stills himself has, as previously noted, at times claimed that he served a stint in Vietnam. Whatever the case, circa March of 1964, he surfaced in New Orleans with his sights set on a career in music. By the summer of 1964, he had drifted to New York's Greenwich Village, where he became fast friends with a young folk singer-songwriter by the name of Peter Torkelson, who, like so many others in this story, hailed from Washington, array of criminal charges. The band soon broke up, and Furet headed off to Connecticut, where a cousin got him a job at Pratt & Whitney. While working there, he took a little time off to audition for a slot in the Chad Mitchell Trio, but he was beat out by a military brat from Roswell named John Duchendorf. Stephen Stills, meanwhile, hung out in New York for a while longer before heeding the call of the Pied Piper and heading out to L.A. in August of 1965. That was the summer, according to Einerson, that the epicenter of American rock and roll shifted coasts, Los Angeles replacing New York as the power base of the music industry. Richie Furet apparently soon found himself missing Stills, but didn't know how to reach his former sidekick, so he sent a letter to Stills' dad in El Salvador, according to legend, and William Stills forwarded the message to Stephen. What exactly the Elder Stills was doing in El Salvador circa 1965-66 is unknown. But former State Department official William Blum provided some possible clues in his authoritative Killing Hope. Throughout the 1960s, multifarious American experts occupied themselves in El Salvador by enlarging and refining the state security and counterinsurgency apparatus, 
the police, the National Guard, the military, the communications and intelligence networks, the coordination with their counterparts in other Central American countries. As matters turned out, these were the forces and resources which were brought into action to impose widespread repression and wage war. Meanwhile, up in Canada, Neil Young and Bruce Palmer were handling guitar and bass duties for the Minabirds. Neil Percival Kenneth Ragland Young was born on November 12, 1945 in Toronto to Scott Young, a sports writer and novelist, and Edna Rassi Ragland, a Canadian television personality. Scott Young had spent a considerable amount of time abroad during World War II, first as a journalist and then as a member of the Royal Canadian Navy. Scott's father, Neil's grandfather, like Richie Furet's, had been a pharmacist drugstore owner. As Einerson recounts, Neil Young and Stephen Stills had more in common than music. Both had grown up in transient families, Neil's journalist father Scott uprooting his mother Edna Rassi, Neil and older brother Bob several times during Neil's first 15 years. Novelists, it would appear, need to move around a lot. Just after his 17th birthday, Neil formed his first band, The Squires, and began playing local gigs. According to legend, it was during those early years that Young and Stills first briefly crossed paths up in Canada. That meeting would, a couple years later, allegedly send Young and Palmer, also born in Toronto, to a violinist father and artist mother, off on a cross-country quest to find Stephen Stills. The Minabirds also at one time featured Nick St. Nicholas and Goldie McJohn both of whom would become members of Steppenwolf. And all the intertwined characters in the preceding narrative, Stephen Stills, Richie Furet, Neil Young, Bruce Palmer, John Denver, Don Felder, Nick St. Nicholas, Goldie McJohn, and Peter Tork, would soon find themselves transplanted to Laurel Canyon. Chapter 15 beyond Buffalo Springfield, and the monkeys, too. He was great. He was unreal. Really, really good. He had this kind of music that nobody else was doing. I thought he really had something crazy, something great. He was like a living poet. Neil Young, sharing his thoughts on Charles Manson. At the time of the legendary serendipitous encounter on Sunset Boulevard, Stills was living at the home of Barry Friedman, a former circus clown, fire eater, TV producer, and freelance publicist. To say that his home was a bit odd would probably be an understatement. According to folky Nurit Wild, it had a bathtub in the middle of the living room and a secret room behind the bathroom where people carried on liaisons. The massive bathtub sat right in front of the equally massive fireplace. As Friedman himself would later acknowledge, this was a very strange house. Not strange by canyon standards, perhaps, but strange nonetheless. Stranger homes can certainly be found, such as in the Hollymont neighborhood near the base of nearby Beechwood Canyon. One such home is described in the book Haunted Hollywood. The house isn't actually haunted, of course, but it does contain some rather unusual features, 
as a past owner discovered. The house's most startling feature, a secret passageway behind a built-in bookshelf he'd discovered during remodeling. It connected to a series of subterranean tunnels linking several houses on the hillside. While exploring the tunnel beneath his house, Gray found a makeshift grave. The headstone read, Regina, 1922. In Friedman's not-quite-as-strange home, he had taken both Stills and Furet under his wing, providing them with a place to live and rehearse, doling out spending money, and introducing them to various music industry contacts. Friedman had been present when the fabled meeting took place, and it was to his home that the group adjourned after stopping on the strip. It was also Friedman who found them their drummer, Walter Milton Dwayne Midkiff, otherwise known as Dewey Martin. Though Martin was, like Young and Palmer, Canadian, he had served a stint in the U.S. Army. Friedman was working for Bird's manager Jim Dixon, who also managed the Dillards. It was Dixon who hooked Friedman up with Martin and with a full slate of electric instruments, just as he had set the birds up with instruments and a bass player. Dixon and Friedman would soon become neighbors when Friedman moved from his odd house on Fountain Avenue to a home in, naturally enough, Laurel Canyon. That home on 8524 Ridpath would become a rather notorious party house, as Jackson Brown, who Friedman later took under his wing, recalled, it was always open house at Paul Rothschild's and Barry Friedman's. Barney Hoskins writes in Hotel California that Friedman orchestrated scenes of sexual and narcotic depravity that soon spun out of control. Among the regular visitors was a gaggle of girls who mainly lived at Monkey Peter Tork's house, which was also in Laurel Canyon, where gaggles of young girls were known to cluster around rock stars sculptors and mass murderers. Just a few doors down from Friedman, at 8504 Ridpath, lived Billy James, who also played a behind-the-scenes role in the success of the birds. A very young Jackson Brown, fresh from the imposing Brown family home in the Tony Old Money neighborhood of Highland Park, lived with James for a year, during which time Friedman worked to build a band around Brown. Toward that end, he recruited someone else who came from old money, a kid by the name of Ned Doheny. Curiously, publicist talent scout James had moved into his Laurel Canyon home in January 1964, a full year before the birds recorded the single that started a cultural revolution. Within no time at all, that home would be surrounded by the homes of numerous rock stars, just another one of those amazing serendipities, I suppose. Most members of Buffalo Springfield also took up residence in America's favorite secluded canyon. Richie Furet initially moved in with Mark Volman of the Turtles, who already had a place up on Lookout Mountain. After marrying in March of 1967, Furet got his own place on the main thoroughfare, Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Neil Young, ever the recluse, found himself what had been described as a shack at 8451 Utica Drive, which was far from actually being a shack, and Stills eventually moved into Peter Tork's home, which was also on Laurel Canyon Boulevard, 
and which once belonged to actor-comedian Wally Cox, a one-time roommate and close friend of fellow Canyonite Marlon Brando. It is unclear whether Palmer and Martin took up residence in the canyon. The band would prove to have a difficult time keeping their lineup intact. Bruce Palmer had a habit of getting himself arrested on a regular basis, usually on drug charges. Some of those arrests led to deportations, since both he and Young were in the country illegally. He never seems to have had much trouble getting back into the country, however, and not too surprisingly, none of his crimes seem to have actually been prosecuted in any meaningful way. He did, though, go missing on a fairly regular basis. During the band's two-year run, Ken Koblenz, Jim Fielder, formerly of Zappa's Mothers of Invention, and Jim Messina all filled in on bass for varying lengths of time. And Doug Hastings filled in for an occasionally absent Neil Young, who had a habit of quitting the band due to ego clashes with the Sarge. The Springfield's second single, recorded and mixed on December 5, 1966, and written just a couple weeks earlier, was released locally in December 1966 and nationally in early January 1967. It was the group's only hit single, and it is remembered today as the quintessential protest song of the 1960s. That song, of course, is For What It's Worth, the opening lines of which kicked off this book. As a protest song, however, it doesn't quite measure up. Despite what is commonly believed today, the song was not a commentary on anti-war demonstrations. Far from it. The event under consideration was the so-called Riot on the Sunset Strip, which involved about a thousand kids who were demonstrating against the imposition of a curfew and the announcement that a popular club, Pandora's Box, at 8118 Sunset Boulevard, was slated to be closed. Pandora's was a small coffee shop that featured poetry readings, folk music, and with the birth of folk rock, Laurel Canyon bands like Love and Buffalo Springfield. The crowds drawn to the club caused a bit of a problem, though, as Pandora's sat on a traffic island at the intersection of Sunset and Crescent Heights, the gateway to Laurel Canyon and overflow crowds would frequently spill out onto the boulevard, blocking traffic and endangering pedestrians. Even before the problems began, the building had been scheduled to be demolished as part of a planned road widening project. Nevertheless, the announcement of its closing sparked a demonstration, and on the night of November 12, 1966, 200 cops squared off against an estimated 1,000 kids. The LAPD, being the LAPD, began cracking heads and arresting everyone in sight. Protesters responded by throwing rocks, setting a car ablaze, and attempting to ignite a bus. Just one month later, a song commemorating the event was blaring from car radios across the city. Eight months after that, Pandora's was bulldozed. Even if the song had been about anti-war protests, it still would be an odd choice for a protest song. Lyrics such as singing songs and carrying signs mostly say hooray for our side seem to largely dismiss the concerns of protesters. 
And the line, nobody's right if everybody's wrong, seems to suggest that protesters are no better than that which they are protesting against. Another curious irony about the song is that it was authored by Stephen Stills, an authoritarian law and order kind of guy, if ever there was one. Stills himself later heaped derision on the very notion of writing protest songs. We didn't want to do another song like For What It's Worth. We didn't want to be a protest group. That's really a cop-out, and I hate it. To sit there and say, I don't like this and I don't like that, is just stupid. While For What It's Worth is now the best-remembered protest song of the 1960s, the most successful one at the time was Barry Maguire's recording of P.F. Sloan's The Eve of Destruction, which was also a curious choice for a protest song for reasons best explained by Paul Jones of the band Manfred Mann. I think that Barry Maguire must have been paid by the State Department. The Eve of Destruction protests about nothing. It is simply a Thy Doom at Hand song with no point. It is probably safe to say that to most music fans, there's a world of difference between a band like Buffalo Springfield and a band like the Monkees. That perception, however, is not necessarily accurate. As Underberger has written, there was not nearly as much gauche commercialism separating the Monkees and the bold sunset strip vanguard as is commonly believed. The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, and Barry Maguire might have been landing hit records with social protest both gentle and incendiary, but they were tethered to a corporate media establishment in order to deliver those messages. On televisions where the action is, you could see the birds lip-syncing the bells of Rhymney in front of vacuous, grinning beach bunnies and muscle men cavorting on diving boards and plastic inner tubes. When Buffalo Springfield mined to, for what it's worth, on the Smothers Brothers show, they suffered the insertion of a shot of Tom Smothers pointing a gun at the camera during the line, there's a man with a gun over there, to a burst of uproarious canned laughter. The parallels between the bands actually ran far deeper than their mutual fondness for cheesy television appearances. Stephen Stills, it will be recalled, auditioned to be a monkey, as did singer-songwriters Harry Nilsson and Paul Williams. Stills and Torque remained close friends and frequently jammed together at various Laurel Canyon gathering spots. Both Torque and fellow monkey Mickey Dolans at times joined the Springfield on stage at various local shows. And Stills, Young, and Dewey Martin all sat in on Monkey's recording sessions. On July 2, 1967, guitarist extraordinaire Jimi Hendrix played the whiskey and reportedly blew the roof off the place, figuratively speaking, of course. Shortly thereafter, he moved into Peter Tork's house in Laurel Canyon. By the middle of July, Hendrix had joined the Monkees on tour as their opening act. He was dropped after just a few dates, however, due to the fact that the Monkees fans couldn't quite wrap their heads around Jimmy's brand of music. Throughout the remainder of the summer of 1967, Stephen and Dewey's Malibu home became the site of informal jam sessions involving Stephen Stills, Jimi Hendrix, Buddy Miles, David Crosby, and Peter Tork.
All of them ultimately ended up living at Torx Laurel Canyon spread, which as previously mentioned, came complete with a gaggle of young groupies who spent an inordinate amount of time lounging around the pool in various states of undress. Those jam sessions, both in Malibu and Laurel Canyon, were fueled by massive amounts of LSD. According to an anonymous insider, interviewed by John Einerson, LSD guru Augustus Owsley Stanley, used to give Bruce Palmer baggies full of acid, a thousand tabs of purple. Somehow he befriended Bruce, so we, the band and various hangers-on, never lacked for LSD. There was yet one more curious tie between the monkeys and the Springfield. While together in Chicago, unnamed members of both bands were allegedly immortalized by the notorious Cynthia Plaster Caster. Our old friend Frank Zappa soon took Cynthia under his wing and relocated her to L.A. to continue with her important work, just as he had taken the nubile young women who had become the GTOs under his wing. It could reasonably be argued that Zappa did more than anyone to create one of the more peculiar artifacts of the 1960s, the rock and roll supergroupie. The aforementioned Amit Ertegen, by the way, played a key role in launching the career of Mr. Zappa, so much so that Frank named one of his sons after him. Meanwhile, Zappa's shady manager, Herb Cohen, was involved with the Buffalo Springfield financially. Stephen knew Herbie from New York, according to Einerson. The Laurel Canyon crowd, to be sure, was a close-knit group, all the more so because so many of them seemed to have known one another before arriving there. Just a couple of weeks before Jimmy's whiskey debut, he had dazzled the crowd at the Monterey Pop Festival, where the band currently under review, Buffalo Springfield, had also played, though by most accounts not very well. Neil Young was taking one of his leaves of absence from the band, and Doug Hastings filled in on second lead guitar. In addition, Stills brought his buddy David Crosby out on stage to join the band, which by many accounts was a rather poor decision on Stephen's part. According to bassist Bruce Palmer, Crosby stunk to high heaven. He didn't know what he was doing. He was all ego. He came on for 40 minutes and embarrassed us. Guitarist Hastings agreed, explaining that Crosby's problem was that he couldn't play rhythm guitar very well, though he thought he could. That was one of the reasons why we sounded so bad at Monterey. After spending the summer of love jamming with members of both Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies and the Monkees, Buffalo Springfield hit the road in November 1967 as the opening act for the Beach Boys, appearing nearly as odd as the Monkees and Jimi Hendrix. Bruce Palmer, whom we have already learned was not one to mince words, had this to say about the Beach Boys as a performing band. They were really lousy musicians, but they had terrific harmony and a name. They were a studio group. On stage, it was like the monkeys. They would spend weeks and months in the studio with Brian Wilson, perfecting harmonies and overdubs. But you put them on stage, and they stunk. 
That Beach Boys Buffalo Springfield tour included a stop, curiously enough, at West Point Military Academy, which isn't really a regular stop on most rock tours. While on the road, the members of the Springfield formed a close bond with Dennis Wilson, a bond that would be built upon in April of 1968 when the Springfield again went out on tour with the Beach Boys. That tour was launched on April 5, almost two years to the day from the fabled meeting that allegedly formed the band. It was the last major tour the group would undertake. Just after returning from that 1968 tour, Dennis Wilson bonded with another local musician, a guy by the name of Charles Manson. When Dennis introduced his new friend Charlie to his buddies in Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young in particular was quite smitten. On April 28, the band began playing its last series of local shows. On May 5, at the Long Beach Arena, Buffalo Springfield played together as a band for the last time. They had been scheduled to play two shows that day, the first at a venue in Torrance, but that earlier show never materialized. The band released its third and final album, last time around, some three months later. As the albums released nearly simultaneously by The Birds, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and the International Submarine Band, Safe at Home, the Springfield's final album is often cited as being a pioneering effort in the creation of the country rock genre. That was just one curious shift that occurred in the local music scene. The folk rock movement, as it turns out, didn't really last very long in its original incarnation. To the contrary, it quickly splintered into three distinct new genres, country rock, psychedelic rock, and the introspective singer-songwriter school of folk rock most closely associated with former mental patient James Taylor. None of those musical genres notably posed much of a threat to the establishment. The navel gazers eschewed social concerns in favor of focusing on tales of personal anguish. The acid rockers largely preached the mantra of turn on, tune in, drop out, and the country rockers largely stuck to traditional, which is to say quite conservative, country music themes. Following the breakup of Buffalo Springfield, Richie Fure and sometime bassist Jim Messina went on to form the band Poco. Through various formations, the band was critically acclaimed, but never had a great deal of commercial success. Jim Messina ultimately left to become half of Loggins and Messina. His replacement, Randy Meisner, went on to become an eagle. A guy by the name of Greg Allman, who played briefly with Poco during its formative days, went on to front the Allman Brothers. Poco debuted at the Troubadour, which served as the breeding ground for the country rock movement in November 1968. The band's first album, Picking Up the Pieces, hit the shelves six months later, not long after the release of the debut album by country rock rivals The Flying Burrito Brothers, formed by former Bird's Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman. Bird David Crosby, meanwhile, teamed up with Springfield's Stephen Stills and ex-Holly Graham Nash, who had arrived in Laurel Canyon in December 1968 
quickly found lodging at Joni Mitchell's Canyon home to form a band first known as the Frozen Noses, a name inspired by the trio's fondness for cocaine. By the late 1960s, the drug that would eventually become the drug of choice of the disco crowd had already begun pouring into Laurel Canyon. As glam rocker Michael DeBar recalled, every drug dealer was in Laurel Canyon. Along with the drugs came lots of guns and huge piles of cash. Before long, according to Laurel Canyon chronicler Michael Walker, cocaine became a pseudo-currency, like cigarettes in prison. A decade later, the world would catch a glimpse of that dark canyon undercurrent when four battered bodies were bagged and removed from a house on Wonderland Avenue. But we've already covered that. The newest Laurel Canyon band was quickly renamed Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and by the summer of 1969, they had the top-selling album in the country. That disc would remain on the charts for an unprecedented two years. When the band got ready to hit the road, though, there was a little problem. Given that Stills was the only serious musician in the band, and it was he who had played virtually all the instruments on that debut album, it was going to be difficult, as Barney Hoskins noted, to translate their layered studio sound to the stage. The solution was, as Einerson has written, to bring Neil Young on board, to provide more oomph to their live sets. And so it was that by the end of the year, CSN had become CSNY. Now the band just needed a rhythm section. Dallas Taylor, who had played in sessions for the first album, was recruited as a drummer. Stills and Young summoned Bruce Palmer to come down from Canada to handle bass duties. According to Palmer, however, that didn't work out, primarily because once he got to L.A. and started rehearsing at Stevens' house with Crosby and Nash, it became real evident that they were nothing but backup singers. They didn't like it and decided to change it. They couldn't take that. They thought they were too big, too famous, too talented. They weren't talented. They were backup singers. It looked to them as if it was Crosby and Nash backing up Buffalo Springfield, being nothing more than harmony singers for Stephen, Neil, myself, and Dallas Taylor. According to Palmer, the first CSN album was 95% Stephen doing everything, and he's got his backup singer boys with him. Considering that Stills composed the majority of the material, played most of the instruments, and produced and arranged the album, Palmer's assessment seems a reasonable one. In any event, CSNY didn't last too long, dissolving after their 1970 tour. Stills next recruited the ubiquitous Chris Hillman to form Manassas, which also proved to be short-lived. Not long after, David Geffen teamed Hillman with Richie Furey and J.D. Souther to create a failed clone of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. The real CSN was not the only new Laurel Canyon band to release a debut album in 1969. Three Dog Night, mentored and first recorded by Beach Boy Brian Wilson, released their self-titled debut in January, and in June, a psychedelic rock band from the L.C. issued its first L.P. Throughout 1968, the band, then known as Naz, had been a regular presence on the Sunset Strip. 
where they gained a reputation for being heavy on the theatrics, but light on the musicianship. The band was fronted by Vincent Furnier, the boyfriend of Miss Christine of the GTOs. Miss Pamela, a.k.a. Pamela DeBar, described Furnier as a rich kid from Phoenix. A staunch supporter of the war in Vietnam, Vince would later become a golf partner of notoriously conservative Senator Barry Goldwater. Furnier would soon change his own name and the name of his band to Alice Cooper after deciding that he was the reincarnation of a witch who purportedly lived in the 17th century. Frank Zappa signed the band, whose debut album, Pretties For You, was the first release on Zappa's straight label. After transforming into a shock rock band, the group would hit it big a few years later with the release of Schools Out. Cooper had a curious connection to another rather eccentric Canyon character, Mr. Brian Wilson. In later years, both Cooper and Wilson would receive wildly controversial psychiatric treatment from a certain Eugene Landy, who took complete control of Wilson's life for an entire decade. Another star client of Landy's was Academy Award-winning actor Gig Young. On October 19, 1978, Young and his fifth wife, Kim Schmidt, were found shot through the head in their New York City apartment. The 34-year-old Young, raised as would be expected in Washington, D.C., had just married the Young Art Gallery worker three weeks earlier. There was no note found, and no one close to the pair could come up with a motive for either to commit suicide. So the incident naturally was written off as a murder-suicide. Young had just taped an episode of the Joe Franklin television show that day, and he presumably had given no indication that anything was amiss. The show never aired. As for the original members of Buffalo Springfield, Stephen Stills and Neil Young are still known to perform at times. Richie Furet founded the Calvary Chapel near Boulder, Colorado, and for quite some time served there as senior pastor. Bruce Palmer died of a heart attack on October 1, 2004 and Dewey Martin was found dead by his roommate on February 1, 2009. He had been living in a nondescript apartment in Van Nuys, California. Chapter 16. Altamont Pie. Graham Parsons. No one could recall ever seeing or hearing about Graham being involved in any protest of any sort. Author Ben Fong Torres, who interviewed scores of people close to Graham Parsons while researching Hickory Wind. Let's begin with the obvious. Graham Parsons was far from being the biggest star to emerge from the Laurel Canyon scene. In his short lifetime, he failed to achieve any significant level of commercial success. None of his albums, whether recorded solo or with the International Submarine Band, The Birds, or The Flying Burrito Brothers, climbed very high on the sales charts. But to many fans and musicians alike, he is considered a hugely influential and tragically overlooked figure. It is safe to say that Parsons does not have nearly the number of fans that David Crosby or Frank Zappa have, and compared to contemporaries who died during the same era, and at roughly the same age, 
Legendary artists like Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and Jimi Hendrix, Parsons is all but unknown. His life story, nevertheless, is a fascinating one, primarily because it contains all the classic Laurel Canyon elements, the royal bloodlines, the not-so-well-hidden intelligence connections, the occult overtones, the extravagantly wealthy family background, an incinerated house or two, and, of course, a whole lot of curious deaths. We begin back about 1,000 years ago with Ferdinand the Great, the first king of Castile on the Iberian Peninsula. It is to him that the wealthy Connor family claims their family lineage can be traced. Also in the family tree was King Edward II of England, son of Edward I and Eleanor of Castile. According to some sources, Eddie II was murdered by having a red-hot iron shoved up his rectum, though most of his loyal subjects probably didn't shed many tears for the hated ruler. Bringing the loyal bloodline to America was one Colonel George Reed, born in the UK in 1608 and married in Yorktown, Pennsylvania sometime thereafter. Reed's offspring would ultimately spawn Ingram Cecil Connor Jr., a well-to-do gent who settled in Columbia, Tennessee. Like his father before him, Cecil attended Columbia Military Academy. In May 1940, at the outset of World War II, he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Force as a second lieutenant. In March of 1941, Cecil, who during the war would become known as Coondog, though no one seems to remember why, was shipped off to Hawaii. Nine months later, Pearl Harbor came under attack by Japanese bombers. Not to worry, though, Cecil was never in harm's way, having opted to forego living in officers' quarters on the military base in favor of staying at a luxurious, massive estate near Diamond Head, owned by wealthy heiress Barbara Hutton. Hutton, for the record, was the granddaughter of Frank Woolworth, the founder of Woolworth's five-and-dime store chain. She was also the daughter of Franklin Laws Hutton, co-founder of E.F. Hutton, one of the nation's first prestigious brokerage firms, until it ran afoul of the law for such crimes as check-kiting, money laundering, and mail fraud. Barbara was also the niece of Marjorie Post Hutton, the daughter of C.W. Post, founder of what would become General Foods. Like so many of the other characters who have populated this story, Barbara was traumatized in childhood by the alleged suicide of a parent. According to news reports, it was five-year-old Barbara who discovered her mother Edna's lifeless body in May of 1917. An empty bottle of strychnine was reportedly recovered by police from a nearby bathroom. There was no autopsy performed, and no official inquest was ever conducted, as would be expected when an extremely wealthy person dies under questionable circumstances. See, for example, the Ned Doheny story. In 1930, just after the onset of the Great Depression, Barbara was thrown a lavish debutante ball attended by those at the very top of the food chain, including members of the Astor and Rockefeller families. The next year, she inherited a fortune estimated to be worth the equivalent of $1 billion today. She was just 19 at the time. 
two years later, she received further inheritance that raised her net worth to an estimated two to $2.5 billion in today's money. Much of the rest of the country was busily wallowing in abject poverty. Ms. Hutton lived a very troubled life with numerous failed marriages and relationships. One of her many paramours was a gentleman by the name of Philip Van Rensselaer, who later penned a book about her life, which he entitled Million Dollar Baby. Van Rensselaer, it will be recalled, was an ancestor of Laurel Canyon's own David Crosby, the man whom Graham Parsons would briefly replace in The Birds. And that, conveniently enough, brings us back to the subject of this chapter. As World War II dragged on, Ingram Cecil Connor Jr. worked his way up the chain of command to the rank of major. Deployed in the Pacific Theater of Operations, he was a decorated hero and a squadron commander who flew numerous combat missions. After the war, he continued to serve in the Air Force at a base in Bartow, Florida, very near the Snively family home in Winter Haven. The Snively clan had first come to America circa 1700, about a century after the arrival of the guy who spawned the Connor clan. According to historical records and genealogical charts, Johann Jacob Schneble, a Swiss Mennonite, was born in 1659. When in his late 50s, around 1715 or shortly thereafter, he ventured across the Atlantic and settled near Cornwall, Pennsylvania. Johann died and was buried in 1743 near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Brought over with him to America was his son Jacob, born on the winter solstice of 1694, and his daughter Maria, born in 1702. In 1724, in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Maria Schneble married the son of immigrants Hans Hirsch and Anna Gunder. That son had Americanized his name and became known as Andrew Hershey. The Schneble name was likewise Americanized to Snavely or Snively. The Hershey and Snavely clans would continue to happily intermarry, ultimately producing, in 1857, Milton Snavely Hershey, the son of Henry Hershey and Fanny Snavely. Milton S. Hershey, of course, would go on to found the world's largest producer of chocolate confections. Less well known is that Hershey failed miserably in his first several attempts to launch a candy company, first in Philadelphia, then in Chicago, and finally in New York City. All of those ventures were financed with Snively Snavely family money. Hershey ultimately succeeded in launching the successful Lancaster Caramel Company in 1883. In 1900, he sold the Caramel Company to focus exclusively on chocolate confections. With proceeds from that sale, he purchased 40,000 acres of undeveloped land and built not only the world's largest chocolate facility, but an entire company town as well. As for Maria's brother, Jacob Schneble, he died in August of 1766 in Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, but not before fathering an astounding 19 children. One of those was son Andrew, who himself fathered 14 kids. From that branch of the family tree would emerge John Andrew Papa John Snively, who headed off to Florida in the early 1900s to seek his fortune. 
By the 1950s, Snively Groves was the largest shipper of fresh fruit in the state of Florida. Avis Snively, who exchanged vows with Ingram Cecil Connor Jr. on March 22, 1945, was the daughter of Papa John. On November 5, 1946, Coon Dog and Davis gave birth to their first child and only son, Ingram Cecil Connor III, later known as Graham Parsons. Soon after, the family relocated to Waycross, Georgia, where, as with Winter Haven, the Snively family owned a massive amount of land devoted to citrus fruit production. It was there that young Ingram Graham Connor was raised. The Connor family home in Waycross, as would be expected, was large and luxurious, and there were numerous servants in attendance, all of whom had considerably more skin pigmentation than did the Connors. Coondog and Avis entertained frequently, and both were well known to be heavy drinkers. There were hushed rumors that they were swingers as well. As Graham's younger sister, known as Little Avis, would later recall, things were mighty strange around the house. In September of 1957, when Graham was not yet 11, he was sent off to attend the Bowles School, a combination prep school and military academy in Jacksonville, Florida. While attending Bowles, he became a member of the Centurions, the school's version of an elite fraternity. The following year, just before Christmas 1958, Ingram Cecil Coon Dog Connor Jr. was found sprawled across his bed in the family home, a bullet hole in his right temple. A 38 caliber handgun was found nearby. There was no note to be found. Cecil's brother Tom had visited just the month before around Thanksgiving, and Coon Dog had told him that he'd never been happier and that life with Avis was wonderful. Curiously, his death was initially ruled to be accidental, but the cause of death was later changed to suicide. Just ten months before Cecil's death, Papa John Snively, Avis's dad, had also died, so she suddenly found herself with both of the men in her life gone. And yet, according to a family member, she never appeared to grieve, and she displayed a total lack of remorse over anything she may have done to drive Coon Dog to allegedly commit suicide. By some reports, she had been having an affair. Some six months after Cecil's death, Avis, Graham, and little Avis boarded a train for a cross-country trip. They were gone the entire summer. Not long after returning, the family moved from the house that Cecil had died in, and Avis soon met Robert Ellis Parsons, who owned a business that ostensibly specialized in leasing heavy construction equipment. Parsons' client, curiously enough, happened to be in Cuba, then under the brutal hand of Batista, and in various Southern American countries that were also under the thumb of U.S.-installed dictators. The Snively clan took an immediate dislike to Parsons, who was described by one family member as a greedy son of a bitch. Nevertheless, Avis quickly married him, and Bob Parsons quickly took control of her life. One of his first moves was to adopt Graham and Avis, even going so far as to have new birth certificates drawn up, listing him as their biological father, though it remains unclear exactly how he could have done that. 
He also promptly impregnated Avis and convinced her to file a $1.5 million lawsuit against her brother, John Jr., and her sister, Evelyn. The suit was settled out of court, with Avis receiving an unspecified number of citrus groves. But the real repercussions would be felt some 15 years later, with the bankruptcy of much of the family business in 1974. In 1960, just a year after marrying, Bob and Avis added daughter Diane to the family. Also added was 18-year-old babysitter Bonnie, whom Bob immediately began an affair with, which apparently was not a very well-kept secret. What was a somewhat better-kept secret is that in the early 1960s, following the Cuban Revolution, Robert Ellis Parsons became involved in what was referred to as the Cuban cause, which is to say that he had very close ties to the leaders of an exile group that was being trained in Polk County, Florida, to overthrow the Cuban government. On at least one occasion, he brought young Graham along to visit the group's training camp. As luck would have it, a team from Life magazine happened to also be there that day, and Graham was photographed at the camp. When Avis was informed of that development, she worked quickly to ensure that those photos were never published. To this day, they have never surfaced. During that same era, Bob Parsons converted a downtown warehouse that he owned into a teen nightclub to showcase the talents of his son, Ingram Graham Parsons, who sang and played keyboards and the guitar. Circa 1963, Graham got a folk combo together that was known as the Shilohs. During the summer of 1964, the summer before Graham's senior year of high school, the band spent a month in New York. During that brief time, Parsons, as fate would have it, met and bonded with Brandon DeWild, Richie Fure, and John Phillips. He would meet up with all three again a couple years later in Laurel Canyon. Despite having expressed an early preference for Annapolis or West Point, Graham applied to Harvard and Johns Hopkins, and despite decidedly unimpressive grades and test scores, he was accepted by Harvard, purportedly due to an essay he submitted that he likely didn't actually write. During his last year of high school, Graham and the Shilohs booked an hour-long gig at the campus radio station at, of all places, Bob Jones University. At his high school graduation in June of 1965, Graham was in his cap and gown and all set to proceed with the ceremonies when he was pulled aside and informed that his mother, Avis, had suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. Seemingly unaffected by the news, he chose to participate in the ceremonies. A classmate and friend has said that there was no sign that anything was troubling Graham that day as he went through the graduation rituals. Avis had died in the hospital, reportedly of alcohol poisoning, right after Bob Parsons had smuggled her in a bottle of scotch. Graham's mother was just 42 at the time of her death. His father, Coondog, had only made it to the age of 41. Neither of their kids, Graham or little Avis, would make it even that far. Soon after his mother's death, Graham received a draft notice from the Selective Service. Not to worry, though. Bob quickly got him a 4F deferment, and Graham happily went off to Harvard, enrolling in September of 1965. 
By February of 1966, just five months later, Graham had had enough of Harvard and he withdrew. According to some sources, he never really attended school at all, but rather spent all of his time taking in the folk music scene in Cambridge and putting his own band together. Graham arrived at Harvard a few years too late to catch that scene at its peak. In the early 1960s, the college town that had been one of the cradles of the resurgent folk movement, hosting such luminaries as Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Bob Newworth, Tom Rush, Pete Seeger, Richard and Mimi Farina, Jeff and Maria Moldar, Eric Anderson, and Joni Mitchell. The epicenter of the Cambridge folk scene was the legendary Club 47, opened in 1958 as a jazz and blues venue. A very young Joan Baez, whose reputedly CIA-connected father worked at nearby MIT, was the first folkie to take the stage, not long after the club opened. Dylan reportedly first performed there in 1961, taking the stage between the build acts. The scene hit its peak in the summer of 1962, which was the Cambridge equivalent of the Hate's Summer of Love. The Cambridge scene, and others in Greenwich Village and elsewhere, were necessary precursors to the Laurel Canyon scene, which was essentially created by taking the music of that earlier scene, particularly the work of Dylan and Seeger, and mixing it with the instrumentation being utilized across the pond by a band known as the Beatles. It is entirely fitting, then, that as with Laurel Canyon, the Cambridge scene came complete with its own resident psycho killer. In addition to the folk scene hitting its peak in the summer of 1962, something else newsworthy happened in Cambridge that summer. A lot of women started turning up dead. Six of them in that first summer alone, and seven more over the next couple of years. And as Susan Kelly noted in The Boston Stranglers, one of those victims was killed right across the street from Club 47. Just across the street from victim Beverly Salmon's apartment, a very young and not famous Joan Baez and an equally youthful and unknown Bob Dylan were playing to reverently hushed audiences at the Club 47. As the title of Kelly's book implies, there actually was no such person as the Boston Strangler, but that didn't stop authorities and the media from pinning all the murders on one Albert DeSalvo, far better known as the Boston Strangler. Just as Laurel Canyon would have Charles Manson as its unofficial mascot, the earlier scene in Cambridge had Albert DeSalvo. Cambridge had something else that Laurel Canyon would later have, Paul Rothschild, who worked at Club 47 and went on to produce The Doors. Folky Richard Farina, by the way, was the husband of Mimi Baez, Joan's younger sister. Farina had attended Cornell University as an engineering major. Cornell also happened to be where Joan and Mimi's dad, Albert Baez, conducted classified research. Albert Baez tended to move around a lot popping up for various periods of time at Stanford, UC Berkeley, Cornell, and MIT, all of which have been revealed through declassified documents as hotbeds of MKUltra research. Albert Baez also traveled abroad to France, Switzerland, and in 1951 to Baghdad, Iraq, where he had spent a year purportedly teaching physics 
and building a physics laboratory at the University of Baghdad. 1951 also happened to be the year that Mossadegh was duly elected in neighboring Iran, and the CIA immediately began planting a coup to oust him, but I'm sure that that is just a coincidence. Anyway, Farina married Mimi when he was 26, and she was just 17. The two of them, along with Joan, became stars of the Cambridge folk music scene, which they were introduced to when Albert Baez moved the family to Boston in 1958 when he went to work at MIT. Richard and Mimi's marriage was a short one, alas, and Richard Farina was killed in a motorcycle accident in Carmel, California on, of all days, April 30, 1966. On that very same day, in nearby San Francisco, Anton Zandor LeVay declared it to be the dawn of the Age of Satan. But perhaps I've gotten sidetracked here. During Graham's brief time at Harvard, he began gathering together what would become the International Submarine Band. When he dropped out in early 1966, he and his new bandmates moved to the Bronx in New York, where Graham rented an 11-room party house where marijuana and LSD flowed freely. One unofficial member of his band was child actor turned aspiring musician Brandon DeWild, known in the 1950s as the King of Child Actors. Parsons and DeWild worked together on demo tapes during their time in New York. In November-December 1966, nine months after leaving Harvard for New York, Graham ventured out to California. While there, he met a certain Nancy Ross, who at the time was living with David Crosby. In Ben Fong Torres's Hickory Wind, Ross provides some interesting biographical details. I grew up with David Crosby here in town. I was 13 when we met. David and I were part of the debutante set. My father was a captain in the Royal Air Force of England. I married Eleanor Roosevelt's grandson, Rex, at 16, 17. I was still married to Rex when I was with David. The marriage lasted a couple of years. I got an apartment and started designing restaurants for Elmer Valentine of Whiskey-A-Go-Go. At age 19, Ross went with Crosby up to his little bachelor apartment where I drew pentagrams on the wall. Soon after, Crosby bought a house on Beverly Glen and Ross moved in with him. That is where Graham Parsons found Nancy Ross and stole her away from David Crosby. Brandon DeWild, who was a good friend of David's and Peter Fonda's, brought Graham up to our Beverly Glen house one Christmas time. According to Nancy, Graham quickly stole her heart. Shortly after, in early 1967, Parsons permanently relocated to Los Angeles with his band in tow. According to Fong Torres, Graham, who received up to $100,000 a year from his trust fund, a considerable amount of money in the mid-1960s, found a house for the rest of the band on Willow Glen Avenue, off Laurel Canyon Boulevard, and just north of Sunset. He and Nancy found an apartment together nearby. Meanwhile, back home, Bob Parsons had married Bonnie shortly after the death of Avis, and the newlywed couple had then moved with little Avis and Diane to New Orleans. Back in Waycross, the Connor family home that had been abandoned after Coon Dog's alleged suicide had been occupied since 1960 
by the family of Sheriff Robert E. Lee. And no, I'm not making that up. In late 1968, on the eve of the election that put Richard Nixon in the White House, the stately home exploded from within and caught fire. The cause of the explosion was never determined. Once ensconced in the hill 